Welcome to Growth Colony, Australia's B2B podcast. I'm Alex from X-Growth. Each episode, we bring you B2B founders, CMOs, marketing and sales leaders to find out about their successes, fails, and what's working for them in the market. If you enjoy the episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share the pod with a friend. And of course, make sure to join the community Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack to connect with our members. That's enough from me. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm Shaheen Hoda with Xgrowth. And today I'm talking to Jill Berry, CEO and co-founder of AdaTree, about her advice on how organizations should approach and target the financial services space in Australia, what works, what doesn't work, and how to ensure a successful sales and marketing approach to the sector. On that note, let's dive in. Jill, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Shane. Very exciting topic. Yeah, same over here. Super excited. Um, so first of all, Ada Tree, young startup, and has accomplished some amazing things in the past two and a half years that you and the team have been operating. One being landing 28 banks and credit unions in this short period of time. Okay. So I, I want to start from there. And I want to hear the story of that, of how did, how did you make that happen? It was a, an unexpected surprise for the year, for, for sure. And it happened actually totally organically because we get asked all the time, like, oh, did you just do it through a parent organization or you know, some type of industry body? It happened incredibly organically. And so we essentially talked to, talked to one bank and we thought that they would, they would be our customer um, using our software. And, and then they're like, oh, we, um, we actually know some other banks who, who have the same problem as, as well. And some of the mutuals and they, and they actually work together like mm. quite, quite nicely in a way that's kind of, I would say pretty unique to them because they're, they're more regional um, in, in their approach for, uh, for competition, their customer base. So they're like, oh, you know, could, could we do a group deal? You know, there, there might be up to 10 of us. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, we can do that. Because um, if you think about like the procurement process and, you know, contacting and meetings and, and demos, gosh, if you can have that type of efficiency, uh, that saves everyone a whole lot of time and money and effort, right? So, mm. like, yeah, of course, we're, we can make a group deal. But yeah, so in terms of that, obviously, it was reflected in the price, but overall effort in terms of, you know, meetings and demo and training materials, those type of things. So uh, wow, that that ended up that ended up happening. What, what do you what do you think, you know, so that's interesting. What, other than other than the product, right? What 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 Ada Tree is offering, what do you think enabled this to happen? You know, what external factors do you think is is currently happening in the financial sector that really paved the way for this to happen. Or you might say, you know what, there's nothing really external. It's all what Ada's, Ada's bring, Ada Tree is bringing to the table. What, you know, love, love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it was just a really important time for, for regulation. Compliance always drives a whole lot of projects and uh, consumer data, right? Like the, the data sharing regime that we regulate or that we operate in. There were some really strict 
deadlines coming up for all these banks um, and credit unions. They had to make consumer data sharing available to think of, or to like put the um, the size and the complexity of the task in context. Like the big four banks, they had they had to do this twelve months prior, and they would have teams of at least a hundred people working on this, and they like and they barely just made it to the to their deadline of July 1st 2020 um, and these the, these ADIs these mutuals they had to do the same thing but they might have one two three people working on it whether it's full-time or part-time but they had to meet the same exact requirements just just a year later so so timing was really important because they had a they had a deadline to meet with limited resources but like a, a very large um, task to actually do. Um, and in considering what we do um, with our platform and, and our software, um, we help companies you know, basically access this regulated data that these banks are, are sharing. So think of it, the, the banks, the data holders, it's like throwing a ball and our software catches it. So it's sending and receiving data. So they essentially you know, talked to us because they had to they had to essentially test their um, their data sharing, and since we were one of the very few companies actually regulated to to receive it, we're like, oh well, our software is actually fit for purpose for this, and we have a dev environment, we have a production environment. Yeah, of course, we we can do this. So I think of it as just looking at our software in a creative way, but also just being. So yeah, so being driven by regulation, it's, but it's not just our software too. But I think it's like our team is actually incredibly empathetic towards, especially towards small banks, just because we've helped build banks. And, and I've I've always worked in, in smaller banks my whole career, realizing that you have a whole lot of work to do with not many resources. So we are pretty empathetic um, to them. We have incredibly deep knowledge. And instead of saying, you know, I'm I'm sure that other companies would have would have, you know, would have seen banks with a with a really tight deadline and just being like, okay, what can we get out of them? But we're like, no, this is great for consumers. Let like let's help them. Let's be part of their extended team. You know, let's give them a, a great offer and and really help them. So I Got think it. It, we just we just had that deep, deep knowledge, deep expertise and the empathy, but also, you know, <laughs> the the platform that we had been building for two years to be like, all right, cool, we can help you right now. Let's do this. Right. Interesting. So so the 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 editory platform wasn't necessarily built for this it was it was it was it the does that mean it was like a this was a byproduct and it was after building it and after getting all the approvals it was like oh we could actually do this too and and then all of a sudden that became a really major uh, part of the business is that is that what happened yeah absolutely we actually didn't have to make any changes to our platform at all, but we're like, oh yeah, we can enable people to receive it. But also at the same time, the same platform, we could test companies that need to share it. We didn't think about that at all until that that opportunity really came up. And I'm like, well, I, I wasn't expecting on doing that, but if that's a problem, we, we can actually help solve it. We can help solve it today. So it was just a business opportunity that honestly just came up really organically and we're like, yeah, we, we can do that. No problem. That's amazing. That's, um, that is, that is such a cool story to hear in our previous conversation. One of the things that you've touched on is a concept called a mafia offer, right? And I know that you've tried to incorporate this in everything that you do at a to tree and, and, and whenever you're going out, especially in the sales and marketing approach. 
and packaging. Can you tell us a little bit about what is a mafia offer? Yeah, a mafia offer, pretty simply, is uh, an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> I actually learned the term probably in 2015. One of my mentors and actually one of our investors, um, like one of the co-founders of Tyro Payments, he was like, he would read so many product blogs and he was like, just like the product and engineering visionary. He loved experimenting, whether it's with smoke tests and mafia offer, it's basically a, a way or just different techniques to show product market fit and just really increase adoption and customer acquisition. Got it. Can you, can you, can we look at like an example? Is there something that comes to mind that we could, uh, we could explore to make it, to make the concept a little bit more tangible for, for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about ultimately when you're building a product or you have a new feature, but you know, you can have all the hypotheses and, you know, and interviews and, and just, you know, so many different product development te- techniques, um, and you have something built and there are just so many reasons that someone may or may not take it up. And if you think about oh, just barriers to um, barriers to entry, and it might you know you might not fit their needs, it might um, not have a product they want, it might be too expensive, they it might just not have a sponsorship, or just it might just be bad timing. But it's a question of how do, like if you give someone an offer, they might tell you a reason, but uh, that they didn't or did or didn't take it. But you know, it, it might actually be a totally different reason. So I think that with the concept of a mafia offer, um, you really see and ho- learn a whole lot from the business. If we're like, all right, if if we say pricing or term or there's so many different aspects of a, a mafia offer that you that you could have, and say, yeah, this is what we'll give you normally, and this is a mafia offer right now. So it's just incredibly compelling that if someone is really serious about you know wanting to receive regulated data or just whatever your product actually really does, that they would take it. But if they say no, it's a it's a question of oh well why didn't you take it? And then so ultimately, you know if it goes well, you you acquire customers, and they get a better deal or just you know I'm sure that ultimately both companies really win. But if they don't take it up. Then you also learn a whole lot more. So it's it's still like a, a product development technique, and you get a whole lot more market feedback and customer feedback, whether they do or don't take take it take your offer. So that's what that's what you know we ended up doing for experimentation in Tyro, but also you know doing it at AdaTree as well. So we definitely learn a whole lot about that. Got it. Got it. So I mean, I would I would imagine there could be an element of like of cost element to it and pricing strategy. So would you, you know, like, would you have a session with the team and say, all right, what are the objections that we get when we're trying to sell our, our product? And then let's go and tackle those. And now let's put this out to the, uh, to the market to see what they say, or is it more sophisticated than that? Or does it have more angles to it? No, it's it's actually not more sophisticated than than that. But we'll be like, all right, well, maybe we'll get this type of customer, or you know, it it might be an industry, or let's just think um, one that we're looking at right right now. Even even one that's um, so looking at data for good. So if we just say, okay, well, 
most of the time when companies receive or want to be part of this, it's because they have a commercial objective and, you know, it might be lenders or fintechs or payments, something like that. But there's so many amazing use cases, say for, it might be non-for-profits or charities or that those type of things as well. So, you know, you could make a lender an offer that'd probably be is like, you know, say term or, you know, pay full price and then we'll give you an extra year for free or, you know, do this and we'll, you know, throw in consulting to get you, accredited or those type of things um, to really help like help you and them meet all of your goals. Absolutely. But if it's for like the non-for-profits, like to get them involved, I think that we would just uh, ultimately looking at some type of a launch pad, you know, just more aligned for data for good, not necessarily for, for revenue, but it's just looking at who, you know, who we would like to participate in, in open banking, whether it's one company or a certain industry or use case and just say, okay, how can we really work together with a whole lot of integrity to just get, you know, get this deal done now? Mm, Got it. I want to switch gear a little bit and talk about another concept that in our conversations come up quite often. And that's, uh, that's a concept of smoke testing. Tell me a little bit about that. What does smoke testing mean? Smoke testing. I'm also a big fan of that. It's the idea of like, maybe if you don't have something done or, you know, ready right now, you have a smoke test. So you put something out there, it might look like it's there. And then ultimately there, so it's just smoke and mirrors. I personally don't like to say it. It'd just be like, this is available right now. But even if you're like, oh, coming soon, register, those type of things. So ultimately it, it shows validation of demand, how many people actually sign up for it before you actually decide to build a new product or a new feature, th- those type of aspects of it. So we actually did that at, at Tyro. We were, I, was, uh, I was head of lending there. We had built a, a new loan product and we had an idea about how to do some um, point of sale financing. And it, it was really, really creative how, how we... We had like a like a like a banking summit because that's when Tyro had just got its banking license um, for deposit products and, and loan products. That's when we we're like, okay, pause, you know, pause financing. It's going to be coming soon. Here, here are the features. This is how it works. And if you're interested, you know, we can sign up. You can be part of the beta. This isn't ready yet, but you know, this will be you know in a couple months. And ultimately. That was a smoke test. So we had, we, we had actually planned on doing it, but it really just showed demands where if we're like, this is our target market, they're sitting right here. And, you know, say if there's, if there's more than pe- five people that sign up, this is how we're going to prioritize it. And then this is how we're going to bring them on in beta. But if the, we, if no one comes uh, to, to sign up, well, then maybe we need to revisit our hypotheses. Maybe we're not ready for build right now because we don't understand something about their needs, the journey, that type of stuff. So it, it's if it's often like um basically like an, an early like wait list or or sign up or a beta program those type of things i i know about someone who um they they did it actually i think it was like a travel company that was looking at a uh, like a oh like round up to donation type of thing because people say oh yeah you can round up to cash or you can round up or round up to charity donations and they'd actually built it and because everyone said, oh, yeah, I, I want to round up to charity, but they built it and then no one ever used it. They literally never had a single user other than an internal 
internal testing. So I think that smoke test would also be a really good way because if you ever, you know, you could even just do testing and just have a button that says, oh yeah, round up to charity or round up to rah, rah, rah. And just say, is there any demand? Let's see what actually click people click on. You could always, you know, just have that button and say, oh, coming soon, get on the wait list, those type of things. And actually measure it really in a quantitative way instead of just qualitative interviews. Just like, oh yeah, cool, I would do that. But just measuring actual behavior by by doing smoke tests. I'm I definitely don't like it when companies have stuff on their website and it doesn't say coming soon at all. I I, I really dislike that. But as long as you can communicate this, like, hey, this isn't ready right now, but that, like, you know, this is how you can get involved as an early adopter. Um, I think it's really important for that aspect of transparency. For, yeah, yeah, for our smoke test. Got it. Got it. How did you, you know, I, I get that. I mean, now you are the, the CEO of Editry and, and you could roll this out. How did you get that past? Uh, you know, the, the higher management at Tyro to kind of put a message out there that uh, about a product that is not available, because I would imagine that a lot of uh, marketers and, and, uh, and, and people who are listening to this and be like, well, I can't get an approval for that. That's like a whole product component that uh, it's really hard for me to just talk to people and, and, and put it out there in the market without us making a really strong decision behind it. How did you how did you kind of get that approval at Tyro? There ultimately I was reporting into the head of product and engineering who is one of the co-founders, and he really, really encouraged experimentation mm. for those for for different features or adoptions or like really modern product development techniques. And I, it wasn't on the website. It was actually like, you know, it wasn't misleading it at all, but it was just like, hey, that you know, this is this is gonna be coming. Are are you even interested in it? So I think that got it. Having having one of the co-founders, having one like, you know, key management, having that like they were driving the experimentation. They were driving some of these techniques. So if anything, they they taught people in the product team how to do this as opposed to being, you know, trying to convince an executive to say, yeah, this is what we should be actually be doing. So I think that that would be incredibly key mm-hmm. to, to have that top down approach to say, yeah, so you know what, this is how we're going to innovate. And this is how we're going to in- innovate rapidly and cheaply too. Got it. Yeah, I would imagine that's a that's a big key in in making that happen. So, Jill, I want to kind of circle back to the 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 conversation that we started about the financial services sector, right? And I would love to hear your advice to people who are targeting the financial services sector uh, to close these, you know, banks, uh, whether they're tier one or tier two, is fintech, whatever it is, um, close them as customers because the the fin server the bfsi space i feel like it's it's if not the most it's one of the most um saturated and and highly targeted sectors in australia so what would you know what would be your advice to an organization to a b2b organization who is trying to target and close bfsi accounts i would say to be incredibly specific about the problem that you're solving and know exactly what their problems are. I think that if you come at it a different way and offer a solution that doesn't relate to the problems that they have right then, that already you're that you're kind of you know like pedaling upstream. Yeah, so I, I would say it's it's the right person, it's it's right timing. That's what's been like incredibly 
it, it, it's worked really, really well for us because we're like, here's a problem. We know how hard it is and we have a lot of empathy for you. This is how we're going to solve it and just make it, it's almost like a mafia offer, right? Like, here's an offer you can't refuse. We know exactly what we're doing. We can help you and we'll make this problem go away. Surely you have better things to do than deal with this. And this is why we're the experts in this. Got it. I love it. I love it. Last question that I want to ask you here before we kind of get into some rapid fire questions is I'd love to hear what your thoughts are in terms of what is going to happen to the financial sector in Australia in the coming years. I mean, we've we've seen a whole heap of changes in the past probably five or ten years um, and with neobanks or challenger banks rising, especially in Australia. What do you think is going to happen? What's coming for the financial sector in the coming coming years? I think that there's going to be two really key changes for financial services. Um, one is banking as a service. So um, right now, if you're, or it, it's the idea of um, of a bank essentially white labeling its license. So you know, Upbank, they're incredibly popular. They and they have an awesome app, and they win great awards. They're actually not a bank. They use Bendigo Bank's license. And so Bendigo does like, you know, they have the licensing and the policies and all the really hard stuff. And up, they're a tech company. And they just have a, a like wonderful product-led roadmap and wonderful CX. So that's essentially banking as a service. You leverage someone else's license so you can deal with product differentiation, differentiation and CX and instead of having to get the license. So I think that we're going to see a whole lot more companies, whether it's existing companies now offering banking products, kind of white labeled and in their names, or some whole new brands just come up and offering banking uh, as well. So you can have the security of having banking products that are actually underwritten by someone else. That's what happens in insurance all the time in so many other industries. It's really going to happen in banking. So banking as a service, it's going to be big. And then and then the other one will be, I mean, obviously super biased, but it's consumer data right. So it's you're going to be able to transfer and share all of your data purely digitally in a really secure way. Password sharing is going to essentially um, either be banned or just people just won't even participate in it. So that really just shows that you can um, have whole new data-driven services that weren't even possible before but also just make existing processes smoother. So gone are the days are of um, you know, downloading statements or, or sharing those or anything paper form. We're just going to see a whole lot of digital things that will be enabled, pre-populated, pre-analyzed by sharing your data and having that analyzed by, by data recipients as well. So overall, that should lead to um, more competition, more suitable choices, and just better consumer outcomes. So I have a very bright outlook for FS. All right. Love it. Love it. All right. Let's jump into some rapid fire questions. Okay. The first thing I want to ask you is what is one resource that can't, this can be a book. It can be a podcast, a blog, a talk, whatever it is that has fundamentally changed the way you work or you live um, and, and your mindset. Work Life by Adam Grant podcast. Adam Grant is a superstar for sure. Question number two if you could give one advice to B2B marketers and salespeople, especially those who maybe are going after the financial services, what would that be? Be pinpointed with your accuracy, targeting, and 
problem solving focus. Question number three, who are some of the influencers that you follow in the, in the marketing and sales space? I have like, just like my own mentors that like that, that I talk to a whole lot. And then generally I just listen to a few, a few podcasts or, or just re- honestly read books, but I'm, I'm more listening to like the product development podcasts. And then I translate that to marketing personally. So even like Simon Sinek. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Simon Sinek is, is, uh, is, is a good one. Okay. Last question is what's something that excites you about B2B today? I think that it's 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 harder to onboard clients, but it's it's I think it's much more personal and it's actually much more relationship based instead of you know B2C marketing that might be a whole lot of ads and social media and that type of stuff. I personally find it that so many of the deals are done based on relationships, integrity, transparency, those type of things. So that's what I love about it really. Got it. Jill, this has been awesome. And it's been great to have you on the podcast. I think you've you've shared some really awesome points. So uh, thank you so much for for coming on the uh, on the podcast and and, and giving us your ta- time. Oh, thanks for having me. You've also asked fantastic questions. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. This episode of Gross Connie was produced by Alexander Hipwell. It was edited by Dave Samito with additional editing and music also by Alexander Hipwell. Special thanks to Tina Wabe and Rod Hoda. We couldn't make the show without you. The show is hosted by Shaheen Hoda. If you enjoy the episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or share a pod with a friend. If you'd like to connect with the members of Growth Colony, join our free Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. Thanks again for all the support and looking forward to seeing you in the next one. This podcast is brought to you by Xgrowth, an account-based marketing agency with a strong specialization in the APAC market. If you're starting to roll out an account-based marketing initiative in your firm or looking to take your current program to the next level, whether it's one-to-one, one-to-few, or one-to-many, don't try to do it all alone. Chat with the ABM experts at Xgrowth to see how they can help you both on strategy and execution of your next ABM campaign. To find out more, head to www.xgrowth.com.au. That's www.xgrowth.com.au. 